to go to today's talk is with Graciela Casillas, the only athlete to ever simultaneously hold a world championship in kickboxing and boxing, retired undefeated, author, an incredible martial artist, seventh degree jujitsu black belt, multiple accolades, just an incredible individual, and I hope you enjoy our talk. Awesome. So, good morning, everyone. Um, today's special guest is Graciela Casillas. Just, I am kind of blown away that I get to talk to you because you're one of those athletes that's very, you, you just your background, your career, everything you've done is almost like twofold because you excelled in two different sports. And then once you retired from active competition, you've just kind of even became even more incredible, if possible. So I'm kind of curious. How did you start? What was your what did your upbringing led you down your career path to actually start competitive boxing and kickboxing? Well, I was um, originally yeah, I grew up in Los, the Los Angeles area, but when I was young, around ten years old, my family moved to Southern California. Well, I was still in Southern California to Oxnard, and uh, I grew up with eleven brothers and sisters, so it was wow. a, a lot of kids and. During that time, it was very different than what it is today. The technology wasn't around. So we just basically, you know, played all day and interacted with each other. But, um, but coming from a traditional Catholic Latino family, they were always stricter with the girls. So I didn't get to do as much as the guys. I didn't get to like run all day and just play and, and, but the one thing I did get to do was to go to church, of course. And I was part of a youth group and, and it was during this time in the, I guess, mid seventies that, um, Father Alex, who was the head of the church at that time, came to our parents and said, what do you think about the kids taking a self-defense class? And of course, I was like, yes, yes, I want to go. Anything to get me out of the house. And so he brought a gentleman named Juan Gonzalez, who was a Taekwondo instructor. And that was the beginning for me. Like the first class I took, I thought, wow, this is so cool. I love this. This is something that I can do. I can do this on my own. I don't need, I don't need to go to, you know, it's an, an outside class. It's in our church. And, and that's where my martial arts began. It gave me, and I did start with several of my brothers and they were either bored or just didn't like it. And slowly, slowly, like three of them dropped out and I stuck with it. And because it was associated with the church, my parents allowed me to continue. That's kind of cool that your faith kind of led you towards your kind of career path. Interesting that I started in the church, yes. And so once you go kind of go through there, is your instructor teaching the time kind of like, wow, you could really, you should you should keep going forward. So how do you kind of move up that, that type of So... As it's often said, said ignorance is bliss. Well, for us, our instructor was very unique. He was very, um, what is the word, hardcore. He was ex-military. So our we didn't have, we couldn't afford geese anyway. We were, it was not a high income area that I lived in. And um, so we um, were army fatigues. So our uniform was army fatigues. We trained eventually after about a year, we were, we were asked to leave the church because um, 
I don't think it they really went well with the Catholic Church just sitting there chanting um with our fingers and and so they came up with different excuses like we were leaving footprints on the walls and things like that. So we ended up training in Rose Park, which was not known to be the best place to train. There's a lot of say drug and gang activities, but we didn't know. So we were out in the park every night training. And um we sparred full contact. We I didn't know what a a foam uh, glove was. I didn't know. We just, that's all I knew. And so I had no reference point. I never, we never did tournaments. It was just the way we trained. Very, very tough. We would do knuckle push-ups on the concrete and, and it was just, it, that is the way he trained us. So at, after about a year or so, uh, left standing was three of us, myself and two other students. Everybody else just quit. And eventually the instructor quit. He's like, I can't keep doing this. So I was just kind of left with this empty. But now what do I do? So I went to the local martial arts school. There was a Huarango school. And I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I just wanted to keep training. And <clears throat> during that era, uh, Jubang Lee, who was the main it was his school would drive from Downey to Oxnard twice a week and teach the class. And he was phenomenal. And that's why. So I continued from Taekwondo. I went to Huarango um, until I started competing. And so how do you jump into the competing? Was there like a promoter or is this another step for you to kind of so, like, I got to test myself? That's it right there. I was thinking, so here I am kind of preparing for my black belt now. And I started thinking, we don't, I started hearing about tournaments and competition, but I, our prof our instructor, uh, Jubang Lee, uh, Grandmaster Jubang Lee, would not allow that. He was just very anti-tournament. He was sort of disenchanted with the whole system. I was too young to really understand at that point, but it was because even back then in the seventy in the seventies, as you know, how political tournaments can be, and if depending who your instructor is, either you won, you lost. So he didn't want to have anything to do with that. So. So um, he did not condone tournament competition, but here I was going, I don't know what, if this stuff even works. I mean, we kind of spar in class, but not really. Um, so that was the time that like mid seventies that I heard about full contact to the knockout. It wasn't called kickboxing then, it was full contact to the knockout. I was like, wow, full contact to the knockout. Well, hmm, it was kind of scary, but I thought, how else will I know? if what I'm learning really works in the street. Right. Even as a young person, I was already thinking ahead, thinking, what if I want to teach this? What if I, what if I have to use this? It was beautiful. The forms were beautiful. The technique was beautiful. And I also had another head instructor, the head instructor there was Bob Dugan, who was later the founder of Executive Security International. And yep. he was very street oriented. He was a phenomenal, and he still is, a martial artist. And so I also had his influence, which made me think more of, you know, street. Today, I always tell my students, you know, there's art, sport, and street. Well, even back then, I was kind of thinking a little bit more street. So I found out that, um, that there was a Kempo school down the street. And they were doing this stuff. They were doing the competing. They were fighting full contact to the knockout. So I would finish my training um, at the Huarango School and I would go down the street, which was about less than a mile to the Kempo School. And I started training with these guys and they were they were competing and they were competing full contact uh, karate. And it was Refugio um, and Jesus Flores. It was their school. 
And that was my first introduction, getting almost knocked out. <laughs> wow. So it must have been kind of tough, too, back in the 70s, 80s, where females weren't... It'd be, it must have been weird having someone like yourself or, like, I'm trying to think of Karen Shepard, Cynthia Rothrock, Kathy Long, people that are, like, you guys are top of the top. But as a female, it must have been a little bit weird. Yes. Right? And none of them were really in the fight fighting. Right. They were in the you know they were in the kata competition, which is very different than than fighting. Uh, they're phenomenal martial artists, but they weren't fighters. And um, I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying they weren't. No, but they you weren't in the competition for fighting. Um, it was very strange. Um, in fact, I just I felt like I put up with a lot because of being female, and I felt like I wasn't. It took. It seemed like. There was a lot of adversity and there was a lot of struggle because, you know, first you had to get to the point where they just accepted you, that they took right. you seriously, that they didn't just see you as a token person there. Um, I got pushed around a lot. I thought I thought at times um, when I was at the Kempo school, I felt like I got hit way too much. Um, I guess, I mean, they they liked me. They were respectful, but I always almost felt like. I was just an extra person that wasn't really going to go far because it was all about the men fighting. And we did get to have a manager at, at the time, but it was the men that got the better treatment. It was the men that always right. you know, they got the fights. And, and so I had to make a decision at that point in my life. I, th well, I also left Oxnard because I transferred to the University of California at Santa Barbara and um, I moved. Um, so then I had no one to train with. Uh, so, uh, so at some point in my life, I just continued training on my own. Um, I did meet someone who had just gotten out of prison. His name was Harry, that my brother said, you know what, you're going to fight somebody to work with you. So at UCSB, they set up kind of a, it was almost like a broom closet. It was a, a small area, just big enough to put a heavy bag in. And I trained in there and I trained with Harry for a while um, to get ready to do some of my fights. But uh, at one point, I decided I need to leave in Troy County and go to Los Angeles, where the where the trainers are, the professional trainers are. And so, if I'm going to keep doing this, um, I need to get real skill because I had the heart and I had I had the the, the desire, I had the passion for it, but I lacked in some of the skill. And I thought I don't want to end up with brain damage. I don't want to end up really getting hurt. So I better really get serious about this. Wow, it's so. After the full contact to knockout, then you kind of start with the boxing, or is that like the secondary type of skills you start picking up? You know, it's interesting because I actually be, uh, turned pro and won a world title in boxing before I did it in kickboxing. And um, and the reason was because you could only imagine in the in the late 70s, for a woman to fight, it was like, you're lucky if you could get a fight. You're lucky. It, everything was a hassle. Right. Promoters didn't want to deal with you. Uh, managers didn't want you. I remember meeting with um, a gentleman named Daniel Goosen, who um, became a big promoter and had many boxers in years later. But I met with him. And he basically was the most honest person and told me, I don't know what to do with you. I don't know how to promote you because I wanted to, you know, move up the ranks in professional boxing. And he says, I've never managed a female. I don't, I really don't know. I don't think I can help you. And, um, and he was upfront about it. Whereas other people that, you know, they're always promising, oh, we can help you. We can help you. But I just, it wasn't, 
I didn't fit at that point in time. It was very different than what it is today. There were very few opportunities. So that was the point in, in time that I had heard about Lily Rodriguez, who was Bidner Kittis' sister, who was also a kickboxer that I looked up to. And I found out that she was boxing. She would do both. And that that's how I, I thought, well, okay, boxing, you just keep your feet on the ground. Right. It's got to be easy stuff. It's got to be easy. I just got to keep your feet <laughs> on the ground. What was I thinking? So I that's when I decided to get it more into boxing because it supplemented the kickboxing so I could go in the ring more often. So you 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 went about in kickboxing, you went about in boxing at the same time. Mentally, was it tough for you to have people gunning at for you on both sides of the different sports? Or like how do you de- how do you compartmentalize the training and the fighting for both of those at the same time? You know, as a young athlete, I didn't even think about that. It was just so natural for me. I just, as we were training for a boxing match, you just, you spar. And I ended up in the L.A. gyms. The first gym I landed in was the Hoover Street Boxing Gym in Los Angeles, which um, there was a lot of great boxers came out of there. And so you just trained in boxing and you just, I, I don't know. I just, it was just a natural for me to keep my feet on the ground when I needed to and and to kick when I needed to kick. And um, it was never an issue. I, I want to say that boxing is more dangerous, I felt, because of the range. Where kickboxing, you don't get hit as much. Today. And the boxing, you're, you know, you're, you're right there in intermediate range and close up. And so you're going to take more, you're going to sustain more punishment if you're not on your toes. So I thought it was more, more lethal than kickboxing in that way. And are you still going for, like, when did you start jujitsu with these other backgrounds? Are you doing that at the same time as well? I've, I've traded. What would happen was in 1980, I was fighting, and I had a friend, Paul Maslach, who was also the editor of Inside Kung Fu at the time. And he was always, you know, again, trying to help me, trying to help me get out there, get the recognition, try to get, you know, different fights. And he also noticed that I was taking a lot of punishment. I was winning my fights, but at the end of my fights, you would go, oh, my God, what happened to her? This is like two nose surgeries to put my nose back after I retired because my nose was like off to the side. So, you know, I took a lot of punishment, but so my friend said, you need to learn how to move more lateral movement. You need more footwork. You just, you're a slugger. You take three to give one. And fortunately for you, you're strong for your size. I was a bantamweight and you knock them out. So I didn't want to keep getting hit. And so in 1980, he says, I'm going to take you, introduce you to someone that can help you. Okay, okay, whatever. And that's when he took me and introduced me to Daniel Santo. And I started training with him. I started um, becoming, I felt like it really enhanced my fighting because of, uh, you know, I, kn- I didn't know what a, what a triangle was until I met him. So for footwork and evading and moving. So that was a time that, you know, my first, I started training from 80 to 88. I was with Dan Inosanto. And at that point, my jujitsu was more sporadic. It was the Professor Wally J because um, those of you that know Guru Dan Inosanto, he was, he would go through different phases at the academy. So we would go maybe through a silat phase and a pen, a penjack silat phase, and then a, um, a boxing phase, kickboxing. And so at one time we were doing more jujitsu and he would bring these instructors to us. So my initial introduction was to professor Wally J um, during that era. 
So yes, but answer to your original question, yes, I kind of did everything. Um, then 1988, I started expanding. Around in the late 80s, I started moving more towards defensive tactics and doing, I was a member of ASLET, which I don't think existed anymore, but it was American Society of Law Enforcement Training. Right. And I would teach it there. They, I would get invited to teach at their conventions. And um, so I was more focused then on street and defensive tactics versus sport. Was it difficult to retire or how did you come to your decision just to retire champion of both? It wasn't very difficult for me to retire because it just, again, there wasn't a lot happening. And that was one of the reasons I did retire was because, you know, it was now 1986 and I'm lucky if I got to fight once a year, yeah. I was just tired of being exploited. And by exploited, I meant that it was always a promoter saying, you know, we can't pay you. We, um, you know, it's really no one's interested in watching women fight. Um, but then I would come in and I'd be on the card and I would be the main event. And it would be my picture on the poster, but I was getting paid less than the undercard. And I just got tired of that. And so it was easy to walk away. It was sad because I thought, I guess I'm a little ahead of my time. Um, you know, I'm never going to have the opportunity. I definitely can. I was working on my master's program at that time. I was working on master's in education. And I thought... And I had my brothers telling me, you know, sis, you got to get a real job one day. You can't live off of this. And even though my family years later was supportive initially, they weren't very supportive. And, right. And uh, only because they didn't see a future in it and they were concerned <clears throat> about me getting hurt and reasons like that. You know. Do you watch fighting still or is there? I mean, Rarely. obviously. OK, I was just kind of curious. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard for me to watch it. I mean, I, you know, they say uh, once a fighter, always a fighter. I mean, I do occasionally, but I don't really watch TV at all. I mean, I watch Netflix once in a while. You're smart. <laughs> I don't watch TV. Uh, maybe I should with everything going on in the world. But um, I just, um, I I get bored watching it. I, and I get too critical. And I'm like, you know, if you're, if you've been a fighter, you're watching I, for other people that have never fought it, you know, um, some people may not respect their opinion and they see the openings and they see that. And then a fighter will tell them, well, yeah, but it's different being in the ring. And that is true. But as a, previously being a fighter, I see all that and I, I get frustrated. I'm thinking, you know, um, they could have done this. They could have done that. But I mean, I, I just don't watch a lot of, fights now so what are your you actually got the title of grandmaster what does that entail so after years and years of being in a martial arts system and what happened in my situation is i eventually developed my own system what i did and and you know i don't i'm not going to say there's no original thought but what i teach today it's not something that i invented but what I did do is I developed the curriculum. So, so throughout my career, 45 years now, I have trained in so many different systems. And when I was teaching, especially in the, my early LA years where I would do a lot of private lessons and, and a person like you could come to me and say, I want to learn martial arts. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to do boxing? Do you want to do kickboxing? Do you want to do scream? Oh, I, I emphasize blades. Oh, I work with a stick. Um, I don't, I also do defensive tactics. Well, what do you want to learn? And they would go, uh, you know, it's, it was confusing. Just like when I was a fighter, it was, well, do I promote you as a boxer, as a kickboxer, as a self-defense expert? What are you? It, so, um, 
So a good friend of mine, Eric Lee, um, I was having a conversation with him one day and he said, Graciela, you need to do your own thing. You need to you need to develop your own system if you're going to continue teaching, especially again, this is now the late 80s. If you're going to go commercial, you can't you can't do it that way. You have to come up with your own label. And so what I did is because I like writing curriculum and I was I had been writing for Black Belt Magazine for years and for Inside Kung Fu, I I liked technical writing. So so what I did is I started developing my own curriculum and taking everything I learned, especially a lot of what I learned at the Kali Academy with Guru Dan and Osanto, um, the concepts, the principles. I really believe that I don't want to say it was martial arts lack, but in some areas that I would observe, I thought it was lacking. I really believe back then still do that teaching and training should be principle based. And what I mean by that, it's even though I came up in a traditional art of Farango, which was, you know, everybody was the same. Your hands had to be here. You couldn't be, I couldn't move here if I, if you know what I'm saying? Everything right. had to be precise. So I don't want to say it was cookie cutter, but to a certain extent you didn't, you didn't change it. And here I'm, I'm here to tell you, you need to change it because your body type is different than mine. And I picked up a lot of this training with, with a lot of different defensive tactics, people from Bruce Siddle to, you know, especially Masada Ayub, who was a huge influence on me. I learned so much from him. But, but what I learned is that as a smaller individual, when we're speaking street, I need to be able to apply whatever I'm being taught uh, effectively and another person who really influenced me that was uh, my training partner for many, many years was uh, Cl Cliff Stewart, who did, had his own system called War Within Arm's Reach. And I started um, looking at work and, you know, working in the field. And I was working in executive protection at the time and started realizing that I needed to pull everything together and put it into a structured system. So when you do come to me, I can say, okay, you're going to learn. This is, this is, it's going to be a, it truly will be a progression. I'm not just saying it's progress, a progressive martial arts. I'm going to show you how it will progress. And I developed different concepts that way. So that's when I came up with, Shin, Eric Lee came up with Shin Shin Do, the way of the warrior spirit. And in the eighties, that wasn't real popular today. Everything, you know, you have five year old right. calling themselves warriors. Um, but when I came up with a name, which, you know, I at times regret, but it was just a label. It was to like an umbrella to um, where I could pull everything under and develop the curriculum so that I would have a, a process, a system to teach the concepts. As I flipped kind of through your book, or I've read excerpts online, and one of the cool things about it um, is the fact that you're not, there's nothing specific or like really like intricate about it. It's about survival and self-defense. I kind of like that anyone, anyone that's not really into martial arts can pick up the book and be like, no, I, now I understand self-defense. You're not learning. For me, obviously, I'm still in the kind of security field, and a lot of stuff you learn, you're like, oh, the bow. Like, you, life and survival isn't going to be with bats on the ground. It's not going to have, yeah. like, a, you're not going to be able to tap out. You can lose your life or your client can get killed. So... I think that's why I think your book kind of resonates with so much with people. Well, I didn't write my book for the martial artists. 
I wrote my book for, you know, my sister who doesn't train or some right. grandmother who, you know, sitting on a plane and wants to read something because I'm a firm believer that you have to train the mind before you train the body. And it is about mindset. It is about survival. It is truly for women specifically, it's tapping into that lioness. It's the lioness that protects the cubs. And I believe we all have that in us. You just have to know how to tap into it. And that's what my book tried to address more of a, a philosophy, a, a concept that if you truly believe in yourself and know, and, and, if, and you know, one of the chapters, are you worth fighting for? I really believe that at times women subconsciously don't believe they're worth fighting for. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on women, but I will say this, I believe, and this is something I learned from Cliff Stewart years ago um, in the early eighties, my Two favorite trading partners were Cliff Stewart and Larry Hartzell. Um, Larry Hartzell was at the Academy and they were like two big brothers and they would teach me. And if you knew Larry Hartzell and Cliff Stewart, they're really big guys. I'm saying they're very strong, powerful men. And they would teach me something. And I would go, okay, guys, that's great. You, it's effortless for you. You can do it. But me, I was a little bit smaller than then, you know, 120 pounds. Give me a break. One day Cliff looked at me and he said, Graciela, if you could make this work, then it's what I'm going to use in the field. Because when I'm in the Middle East, wherever I'm at, and I have to deal with more than one threat, I need to shut them down as quickly as possible, move on to the next person. So if you could make it work, you know, and he was trying to tell me, look, it's, me it's mechanics, it's a concept, it's a principle here. If it works for you, then it's going to be effortless for them. I never forgot that because I, when I teach, I always think about that. Men should be taught the way women are taught, not vice versa. And that's the problem with a lot of martial arts training. It's that they expect women to keep up with the men instead of saying, you know, this technique, it's easy for a 115-pounder female to do than you as a 200-pounder. Right. That's what you should be doing. Not, you know, not flexing and <clears throat> going, I'm going <laughs> to, excuse me, I'm going to, you know, right. I'm gonna do this because I'm big and strong. <laughs> It should be effortless for you, especially if you're working in you know security business or or you're walking out of a restaurant, you know, with with someone in and all of a sudden you're approached and you have to defend yourself. Do you wanna get do you wanna grapple on the floor for twenty minutes? It's not gonna happen. It's just not. Right. Do you have tendencies when you're out in public with your family or friends, like going to a movie theater or eating at restaurant? Is there stuff where you're always that people are like, What are you doing? For me, I'm like, I don't want to put my back against the wall. I don't want to, I want to see if something's coming at me. I always sit near the exit if I can. So is there ever times where you're kind of like. So, so what you're referring to is what I, well, it's obviously situational awareness, but one of the things I've learned in life is that common sense is not common. And for me, that's common sense. And what I teach is what I try to apply in my life. And what I call that is scanning or diffuse focus. You know, when I walk into a room, I'm not like paranoid looking right. okay, behind me. But, you know, softly, your eyes, you kind of take everything in around you. Yes, you do. You should pay attention because self-defense is just not somebody coming at you when you've got your back against the wall and you're in a booth that you can't get out of. Self-defense is also knowing where the exit is. So if the building catches on fire, as you've heard of so many you know, situations where clubs, people have died because they couldn't find the exits. Right. So I have two daughters. And I have made sure that they know certain stuff, you know, in life. They know, you know, how to observe. For, I call it, you know, observing for a purpose. We're always told you have to be aware of your environment. But often, like I, you know, I, I always say this, but what does that mean? 
What does right. it mean when you say, you know, hey, honey, when you leave today, you're going to school, just pay attention. Well, are you really teaching that person what to look for? And it just seems so simple, doesn't it? That, But are you looking for, you know, to cross the street that there's no cars coming? Or are you looking for strange looking guy hanging out, you know, leaning against your car that you don't know? So when I say observe for a purpose, it's being taught what to look for, who to look for, and how to observe and, and read a person's body language. And so things, I, absolutely, I do. Um, I think about things like that. I always have a weapon on me, whether it's an ink pen, a blade, or a firearm. I always, you know, um, there's just, I think about, I'm constantly looking at things, and I tell my kids, just look, if you're at home, anything, a picture frame off the wall can become a weapon. So absolutely, I, I'm, I just think, I do that, but I'm comfortable with it. It's not. It's not even conscious thought anymore. It's just. It's a natural. Reaper. Right. How did you get involved with kind of like edge weapons? Because in your biography, you it says you're obviously you're an expert in court cases involving edge weapons. That must be kind of. I like how often are you called it? I think that's cool. Well, so when you think about edge weapons, there's this, there has been over the years a big misconception in terms of um, of how lethal a blade could be versus a firearm. And when you think about even in terms of law enforcement now, they, now uh, law enforcement training has obviously changed and it's more progressive. But back in the day, you know, um, we talk about critical distance, you know, what is critical distance? You've seen videos on it, and I'm sure of, you know, uh, how quickly a person can cover distance with an edge weapon versus you having a, uh, your firearm holstered. And a lot of these studies came out of law enforcement where they were saying, well, he only had a knife. And yeah, now either you're dead or you have a knife embedded in your chest. So really, I was always fascinated. I have to tell you this funny story where my first introduction to blades when I was a kid, my parents used to, my father, who had this idea that, you know, he has 11 kids. We're going to make money in the summer. He would take us to Northern California. You mentioned Sonoma earlier, uh, Santa Rosa, Guernanville, and he and we would pick grapes. And we would pick prunes. So we were kind of like a migrant family, but we worked all summer. And it was hard work. But when we picked grapes, we were given a blade. It's like a little, it's a small knife, and that's what you cut the cut the, the grapes with. And as a kid, I mean, I was seven, eight, nine years old, I had already had an introduction to, to edge weapons. I loved it. It was cool to have. I thought it was a cool tool. I didn't think of it in terms of martial arts. I had no training at all until I started the martial arts. But I was always fascinated with the blade for several reasons. One, for a smaller person, it quickly becomes an equalizer. Okay, two, you know, unlike a, a gun, it's not going to run out of ammo. It's not going to jam. It's readily available to you. More people kill, get killed every year and stabbed with a Phillips screwdriver than they do with, than they do, um, than they're shot with a firearm. So when I think about for women, it's such a perfect weapon. And so I started training and my initial training again came from Dan and Asanta working with the blade and and loving and falling in love with the Filipino martial arts when it comes to edge weapons for one reason, because it is so fluid and it truly teaches you to build your reflexes. There's not set, there are drills obviously and set patterns, but in reality, 
the way you train in the Filipino martial arts with the blade, it's, it's, it's devastating. They're vicious with the blade. And partly, be, as I said, they're building the reflexes. It's not a set, okay, this is technique number one. You're going to learn how to, you know, you cut to the throat, cut the arm and cut, you know, obviously there's principles involved, but the way they train um, to develop that skill is phenomenal. And so I, I really believe in the Filipino martial arts when it comes to edge weapons. And for me, being a smaller person, it just became, it just was a natural weapon for me. And it was more functional and practical than, than a 28 inch stick. Right. It's cool hearing you talk about the training aspect because like you, I'm pro second amendment, I'm pro owning a weapon, self-defense, but just because I can buy a gun or buy a knife at a hardware store doesn't mean I can just use it. I have to know how to use it, how to clean it, how to even carry it on my person. So it's cool. Again, it's cool hearing you reiterate the fact that you still have to train with these tools just because you can have access to them doesn't mean you're a pro at it. Exactly. And I think that's the biggest um, issue with people getting, having their weapons taken away from them. Um, it's that if you're not taught, you know, when I used to do a lot of teaching it, when I would teach it as one of um, one of the years that I was at one of the conventions in Wisconsin. And while we were out there that week, I think it was at least it was two female officers had been, shot in the line of duty in Texas at that time. And so it was an issue because they were at this convention. We're talking about what is women. Why? And I started really thinking about that. And I, I started realizing that because of the way we're, it's about train, how we're trained. So when they say as a woman, you shouldn't carry a weapon because it's probably going to be taken away and used against you. I started thinking about that. And I realized it's not a gender issue. Okay. As many officers lose their firearms and get, shot with their own sidearm. I mean, it's unfortunate and it's sad that it, but it does happen. And it has to do with training. As, as I said, it's not a gender issue. So if women are trained properly, and the issue to me is that too many people buy these cool weapons and they carry them, but they don't have a clue how to use them. Right. Holster. Right. Yeah. I'll, and when I do my seminars, I, I tell students, especially if it's an edge weapon seminar, I say, you need to really have a, a meeting with yourself and go, am I really prepared? And be very graphic. I'm, am I prepared to take this knife, place it on somebody's flesh and cut to the bone? Am I prepared to do that? So you'll see, especially women go, oh, you know, and I'm thinking, but they're not. So don't carry a knife. Don't carry a gun if you're not prepared to pull the trigger, if you're not prepared to cut somebody. And a blade is a very up close and personal. You know, yeah, with the like firearm, you have the distance, but with the blade, you don't. Are you prepared to do that? And I guarantee that majority of people that carry a knife would not be able to use it, um, at least if they haven't had the proper training and they don't know how. And they don't, you know, for me, training really emphasizes weapon retention. If you can't hold on to your blade, then, yes, it's going to be taken away from you. I don't care if you're male or female. So if people that go to your class, what are some if you can discuss kind of what are some of the practical scenarios? Cause I think everything you do is practical, real world based. And so how do you set up certain scenarios like walk into the car or. I, I do uh, both and I do teach art and we do sport, but my emphasis when I'm doing more street training, it's um, it's, we just, we talk about it. I don't have a facility where I have, you know, an abandoned car where somebody right. can turn out of a car or it's not like, you know, that type of, it's a 
martial arts school. But um, the most important thing that I teach is in the training, it's building your reflexes. The drills that we do is if you cannot react with, if I do this, what happened? I had an itch in my forehead. I moved my hair. There was no thought. It was a reaction. So if it cannot be that reflexive, then you're not going to make it work. So in all the training, we do the hot box. You know, we have different people, you know, attacking. Um, and we might put one person. These are common drills. But when you really think about it, what builds your skill? What is the best and the quickest way to train to build your skill? Put somebody in the middle, have different people randomly attack, and then we start walking around and circling them so it gets more confusing where you don't know who's coming at you. And then they come at you, and you and there's no set pattern. The issue is with the patterns that we teach that people, who's who has time to think of a pattern? Right, no one. If you don't react like this, then you're not going to react. Uh, it's going to be too late. And so the emphasis is more in the specific training, how you develop those skills. And, you know, I've always told my students when they become black belts, they may not be an expert, but I guarantee they will be able to walk into any school on the planet and not be lost because right. they understand principle, that training is principle based. And so that's the way the way we train. What's the toughest part of being an instructor for you? The toughest part of being an instructor, I think, is, well, there's, if it's traditional martial arts, is wanting students to get it, to learn. But for me, right now, at the point in my life that I am, um, and focusing more on working with women also, or a small individual, I think that the most difficult thing for me is to want people to find value in the training and what you have to offer. That's the most that and that has been lifelong for me since the beginning of time for me in the martial arts has been the issue is how do you get people, again, women in this case, to find value, to not be in denial, to not go. Oh, yeah, I know. I took a seminar 10 years ago. I'm good. Check that off my list. Right. Yet when they do salsa classes or golf or tennis, they don't go one time and then become an expert, but they can't make that connection. They can't connect those dots. They think that's off their list. They're good. They don't understand that it's still a physical skill. There is training. And and the other part is under, making people understand that you better be fit. You know, it doesn't matter how many techniques, you know, if your body is not strong enough to sustain and endure the punishment it's going to take in a fight. And I'm not talking about sport. Right. If you have no cardiovascular conditioning, if you have no muscle strength or endurance, if you don't do any resistance training for a small person, how are you going to push? If you can't do a push up, how are you going to push somebody equal or higher or larger than you off of you? So these are the things that I think about. It's frustrating. Right. It's you are also always learning, too, which I've kind of realized, like you're never happy with your own knowledge. And so how do you. Is there, if you see something like a trend that's happening with, uh, say, women are being attacked, there's stuff changes, or are you always kind of like, well, I need to go talk to the expert that, and I need to learn, and I need to incorporate that? Absolutely. I'm always, I think, I'm always looking to train with new people or to learn more, um, because I think that you have to address the new issues if it is a new issue. Um, but more than that, I just love 
love learning. I'm always curious. I, you know, now it's off, off and on I get to train and where I'm at, there's not a lot going on. But before, obviously, our, our pandemic, uh, I was training, doing a little training with Ron Baliki. I just, any, oh. go to a seminar, I'll go to, because he's local. Diane and Ron live very close to the, the city that I'm in. And um, I just, I when I'm teaching, if I teach at a com- convention, I want to know right away who else is there. And I'm excited to learn from different people. And um, I've just always felt like, you know, you can't, you have to be able to put your ego aside because for those instructors who their ego prevents them from walking through somebody else's door, who at the end of the day, when they go home, who, who missed out? So I don't care. I don't care to be a beginner. I don't care to be awkward. It's just because later on, that's something I might be able to take back to my students and, you know, as you know, you learn from your students also. Sometimes students come up with stuff and you go, oh, that, how, come I, how come I didn't think of that? that was right. Crazy. Or yeah. they think of a situation where you're kind of like, man, I never experienced that. That's, exactly. I think ego is the biggest downfall for man and woman in general. They just, they can't swallow their own pride. And I think that's actually what hurts more than does any good. Exactly. So you recently retired from counseling, correct? Yes. So how did you kind of, did, I can kind of picture in my head how martial arts and your background led to counseling, but is it, I wonder if it's the way I am thinking. Because how did you, obviously you love serving and helping people, so is that what kind of led you into that kind of work? Well, throughout my martial arts career, I was in school. I actually, you know, I graduated from UCSB. I have a bachelor's in a pre-law because I thought I was going to be an attorney. And then I didn't like that. Um, so um, while I was out in the world trying to make my way in the martial arts world and living, m- mooching off of one of my brothers in the valley, he's like, sis, you know, you, you need to get a job. <laughs> you got to help. And I'm like, I'm, I want to be a world champion boxer. What do you mean you're not going to take care of me? And uh, so I stayed in school and, and decided, you know, to how to get a real job (laughs) because obviously, you know, my job was getting up at five in the morning, driving to the park and and running with all the mail with the boxers at Griffith park in LA. And then at 10 o'clock I was at the boxing gym for like four or five hours, however long it took for me to train. And, and I say four or five hours because I had to wait and I had to wait because all the guys got trained first and then they'd get to me. And then afternoon I was at the, at the, at the gym, at the weight training gym with Vince Geronda. And, and uh, that was my life. So where was I? I had no time to work. Um, But eventually I had to, you know, start paying rent and taking care of myself. (laughs) So, um, but I always loved, uh, and and I had a bachelor's degree that I was doing nothing with. So um, I really thought about, I constantly found myself in a position that people wanted to talk to me. And I just felt like, you know, this feels good trying to help people. So I started pursuing a master's degree in education and became a, became a counselor at the Glendale Community College. And uh, I just really liked working with students. And I did that. But at one point in my life, being a single parent, that was overwhelming. So I went back to school and got a second master's degree so I could teach. So for my 20 year span, I left counseling for about seven years and became a, an instructor at community college where I developed curriculum. I taught, you know, I, it was a great job because I taught Eskrima, Jiu-Jitsu, boxing, 
kickboxing. That was my full-time job at the community college, all under PE. And I developed all these courses, kind of created my position so I could be off early and I could be available to my daughters. And um, so um, I loved that. And then budget cuts came and they pulled me back into counseling. So, you know, I was department chair of counseling for many, many years until a year ago or so when I, I retired. Wow. So the last question, and it, oh, it's kind of probably one of the more random things on your biography. Hmm. For Smokey Robinson's Just Hold Me, you were involved in the choreography of that. How does that even come about? That was that was hilarious. That was so much fun. So in the mid 80s, like a lot of martial artists, we were doing film work and I was doing talk shows and and I auditioned to be like the main the lead um, to work with Smokey Robinson. And um, the person that one that got the role was uh, you've heard of the Guardian Angels out of New York, yep. the Silva. Well, they cast her because she was taller and she was also a very good martial artist, but they wanted me to be technical advisor. So I got to work with her and work with him and we were choreographing. He was doing a funny thing to the song, uh, Hold Me, and wanted to do every time he sang, and I'm going to tempt because I don't think in the shower. Um, so he, uh, she would be choking him, you know, or she would be throwing him or she would be all in fun. And so, yes, I got to hang out with him for a day and it was just very cool. He was a super nice person. Um, again, talking to me about his daughter and not sure how strict he should be, et cetera, et cetera. It was just a really cool experience working with him and, and helping choreograph that video that he was doing at the time. And you've done a couple of movies too, though. Fire in the Night, I believe. Fire in the Night. I, yeah. yeah um, I, during that era, I, I did probably every talk show that was, that was around and did some film work and then, um, just went in a different direction, but yes. Right. Yeah, you see sometimes some of those um, rush artists or they get they kind of lose their um, they get to that Hollywood level. They're like, well, I don't have to train. I don't care about the now I'm already here. So it's kind of cool that you actually kept through and you still learn and still train. So that's awesome. Yeah, I love it. Yes. <laughs> so I want to thank you today uh, for doing this. I. I took a bunch of notes and it's great to hear from experts like yourself, just kind of picking your brain a little bit. So I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. No, it's a pleasure. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? 
Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.